Welcome to season two of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Dr. Gabriel Ben-Wilner, Chief Medical Officer at Palmetto GBA and Director of the MOLDX program. Dr. Wilner, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I, I've heard you speak at different conferences, and you have a very unique perspective on precision medicine from a, a payer perspective. But tell us a little bit about your background and your, your career path to where you are now with the MOLDX program. Sure. Yeah, I have a I have a long a long history of how I got here. So you're gonna have to cut me off if it starts <laughs> to stray for too long. Um, so I um, I'm an MD PhD from the a medical scientist training program. Uh, I I, uh, <clears throat> I was always very interested in genetics and genomics and wanting to uh, bring genetics and genomics into the clinical space. That's if there's one sort of running theme that will sort of make sense um, as you listen to all the different things I've done, that's sort of a core guiding principle for me or always has been. Other things have constantly changed, but that's always more or less remained the same. And while I was in residency, this new technology was just starting to emerge called next generation sequencing technology. And looking back towards the end of my PhD, I had all sorts of questions that I could not answer. And I had a lot of studies that I never finished or published because the technology didn't exist to allow me to look at broad sect sectors of, of the genome at concurrently. We had to, previous to next generation sequencing, we had to know what we were looking for. And then we could only explore that thing that we already knew was there, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I had a lot of experience even before, uh, my, my PhD, it, working to some degree in, in, in genomics, I was actually before my MD, my MD PhD, I was at uh, uh, the National Institutes of Health um, doing scientific training there uh, and working in a lab uh, um, doing gen genomics um, at the same time that the uh, NIH was publishing the first draft of the human genome. So I got to be exposed mm -hmm. to a lot of that, although I wasn't directly working on that. Um, I went to Baylor College of Medicine and uh, did my PhD in human molecular genetics. And I got interested, uh, I started, I, I worked in a, in a constitutional genetics laboratory, uh, looking at rare, basically rare pediatric diseases, focusing, and the, the lab I was in uh, focused on genomic rearrangements. Um, and towards the end of my PhD, I kind of did my own unique path there uh, and went and strayed heavily from the core focus of the lab. Um, my, my PI uh, wasn't happy with that, but I was just going to do where the, I was just going to do whatever the science led me to do. And I decided that WashU was actually a hotbed for some of the research around next generation sequencing technology. And I wanted to work in that field. I thought it could answer a lot of the questions I had from my previous work. 
Um, and I could apply that same technology to those previous questions, although now I had, a, I had a whole new set of questions around cancer. And I wanted to be able to use this technology to answer those kinds of questions. And uh, while she was actually kind of at the forefront of some of this de development, um, there was a, 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 a gentleman who had recently started a laboratory at WashU that was that helped develop some of this technology. His name is Rob Mitra. And I started doing research during my residency in his lab. Um, and it was interesting. So my, my, my PhD is in classical genetics, even though I did started to incorporate some computational genomics uh, towards the end of the PhD. I didn't have any real traditional bioinformatics training, or I didn't know computer coding, but I really quickly realized that, that 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 was an essential component of of this new technology. That you couldn't just look at a Sanger sequencing tracing to come up with what uh, the, the genetic code was of or, or the genetic sequence was. You're now getting hundreds of millions of reads of DNA, and you need to have a computational approach to to look at it. Well, I, I went to WashU. I know this has already been prolonged significantly, but I went to WashU for residency, uh, fellowship, postdoc, um, and faculty position. Um, and, and I got to really get my hands very dirty in a very new technology, which is next generation sequencing technology, at a time when very few uh, clinicians were anywhere near this stuff. Um, and I was going to stay at WashU forever. Uh, that was the goal. Um, I bought a house in St. Louis and I spent five years gutting it and remodeling it. <laughs> and uh, I just finished the kitchen uh, when I realized it was time to go. And I never really got to enjoy Someone else got to enjoy the fruits of my labor in that house. But I had a lot of industry knocking at my door, realizing that this technology and uh, its application for cancer was going to explode. And I was one of the few at the time, real knowledgeable people and how to create clinical laboratories um, and, and validate tests in this setting. Certainly not the only one, but I had a lot of exposure and experience in this field. And then this opportunity came up, oh, finally, we're going to get to how I got the job I have now. Um, <laughs> I, I was very happy to do that. And then this opportunity came up uh, to be the director of the Moldex program. Uh, at the time, um, even though those of us in the field were very gung-ho about the future of medicine and precision medicine uh, and molecular diagnostics. Um, there was there were a lot of big obstacles in the way um, that that you know from from the provider side were sort of obscure. Um, we we knew we had some issues, um, variety of issues, and a big one was the payers. Um, why don't the payers understand these tests? Why don't the payers pay for these services? And I had the opportunity to uh, interview for this position, understanding that the Moldex program is is very important as a for the payers in understanding these tests and making policies around these tests. And um, I accepted the invitation because I really wanted to come away from. I really had no intention of taking the job. Uh, taking the job, I really wanted to understand who these people were. And I wanted to understand how they made decisions. 
And so uh, in the past, they'd made some very controversial decisions um, that I'll just say that many of us didn't, those at the forefront of this technology didn't really agree with. Um, I went to South Carolina, interviewed for the position and talked about my experience and my, um, you know, why I was qualified for the position and that they told me they were looking for someone who was a subject matter expert or even a key opinion leader in the field. And uh, at the end, they asked if I had any questions for them. And I did. I had a lot of questions for them. And I, I wanted to know why they made certain decisions and what they were thinking and why they weren't doing better at this or that. And I really just wanted to give them a piece of my mind. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as a result, I think they, I think it accidentally triggered something in them at realizing that they thought that I could do a good job running uh, this program. And, and so they offered me the position. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that running company, running labs for companies or helping individual patients looking at their, uh, at their or helping uh, oncologists understand the reports better, running precision medicine, med, uh, precision medicine programs, which I've done all of, being able to help the payers understand these tests, especially Medicare and making policy would allow me to not help one patient or one hospital system, but really all the Medicare beneficiaries um, by being a, a, someone who's really knowledgeable in the space, make very, very important decisions. Uh, you know, before taking this job, I would always, I would often discuss with other leaders in the space what we could do to prove that there is value to these tests and who we would need to put together um, in, a, in a strongly worded letter um, to, to get through to the people who make decisions. And now I realize that I could just be that person that makes decisions or be one of the people who makes decisions. Yeah. And I realized just how important this role was. And, and really, that's why I took this, this position. I realized that I could do a lot more good. Um, and again, the, the goal in me taking this position wasn't to force medicine to accept something it wasn't ready for. It is, is really to bring real expertise to the evaluation of evidence and, and understand um, if these tests or which of these tests have met the criteria for what is reasonable and necessary that's, that you need to demonstrate um, for coverage. And so that's really what I bring to the table. And I'm, I'm very happy in this role. You know, many of our listeners and folks in the industry who've been a part of, of what we consider precision medicine have heard of MoldyX. They've heard of Palmetto GBA, but can you explain uh, what the MoldyX program is and what it, what is the relationship with Palmetto GBA? Yeah, no, thank you, uh, Jerome, for that question. So I, I think the payers in, or providers in general, I, myself included before I was on this side, have a not a very good understanding of how Medicare works. There's not a central office uh, where you know you perform a service and you send an invoice to to Washington D.C. and then they they pay that bill. That the Medicare program is not run centrally; it's really run um, locally, um, and it's not really even run or or operationalized by the government. It's it's run by Medicare administrative contractors or MACs. These are private entities that bid for uh, administering the program to the central government. And when they win those bids, they administer the program for certain regions 
countries broken up into jurisdictions. And one of these MACs or Medicare administrative contractors is Palmetto GBA. Palmetto GBA currently has two contracts, the JJ and JM contracts, which let's just say covers most of the Southeast. Um, so, so they are the company um, that I'm an employee of. They pay my checks and I'm a chief medical officer with this company. Then there is the Moldex program. So part of one of these contracts, which is the JM contract, um, this specialty program was created um, and is supported by Medicare. And this is the Moldex program. The point of the Moldex program is specifically to understand the molecular diagnostic space, to write policies um, for this space, to evaluate tests, um, to create payer controls to be able to handle these tests. And we can get into the details of why molecular diagnostics is so different than all other medical specialties that it requires a specialty program. But that's the point of the Moldex program. And it um, actually is a joint program with three other MACs. And that is the Noridian MAC, which is basically um, the West Coast um, and the Northwest um, the CGS, which is part of, uh, around the Midwest and WPS, which is also within the Midwest. Um, so this program, uh, we write policies, um, we create the payer controls, um, and then our policies and controls then go out to these other Macs and they institute these policies and controls. So we write policies that affect 28 states and controls that affect those same states. And I am the director of this program. You mentioned that Palmetto was looking for a subject matter expert. And I'm sure you've heard this and being in the industry for a while, I hear from providers who lament dealing with their insurance companies and that they don't have that expertise and they have to explain why they need access to a drug that there's a clear indication for. In fact, on our podcast, Robin Toff talks about a talent crisis in the space where there's just not enough experience, skill, and knowledge for leaders for companies that are leading companies into this uh, precision medicine future, if you will. But other than just kind of the talent and the know-how, what have been some of the challenges from the payer perspective that you've seen and that payers have had to navigate as this precision medicine space, the, the explosion of diagnostic tests has grown over the last few years. Sure. So, so the Moldex program was really created to try to navigate the challenges. So let me, let me go through some of what that is. The, the talent aspect of this is, is very palpable. So, the way Medicare works um, is that the, the, the determinations, the, the policies are written by, by CMDs or contracting medical directors. So I, I told you I had two titles basically within Palmetto GBA, but I have a third title in this role. I, I, am, um, I am the chief medical officer for Palmetto and the Moldex director, but I'm also a contract medical director for CMS, which means... Or, the, the, the program, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. What this means is that I'm authorized by CMS to speak on their behalf and make decisions for them. The way that the Medicare program works is these CMDs are hired by the MACs 
to make these policies. And they have to be physicians. And there's, there's a level of expertise and experience that's required to have these roles. Um, but there tends to just be a handful of CMDs for each MAC to handle all of medicine. So a typical CMD would have to make decisions not only about laboratory medicine, but cardiology and oncology and nephrology um, and write policies for all of these completely unrelated medical fields. So you can imagine that you could argue that there's not a core expertise um, it, it, within the, the MAC for really any of the policies that are generated. And so wow. the MACs have ways of getting that expertise. So they can put together what's called a CAC or a contractor advisor committee. By the way, let me stop and say that alphabet soup here. It's out. It, it, the acronyms are crazy in this landscape. And when I give talks, I usually have a little acronym key <laughs> so you can, you can follow along. And I remember when I was first on the job, the first the, the first day that I'm at Palmetto, I'm standing around with the four or five other uh, CMDs, um, and we're having a discussion. And I remember uh, the senior medical director making a, a statement to all of us, and it was a joke. And it was a sentence that maybe had uh, th two words in it that weren't acronyms, and everybody was laughing, and I had no idea what anybody was talking about. Um, so two years later, I, I think I, I'm fairly caught up with it, but, but yeah, it's a steep learning curve on the acronyms. So anyway, the, the, the point of that was to say, yes, um, the talent gap is huge, and if you're writing policy and you don't really understand what you're writing policy about, which is a lot of the time, you have to really rely on people that you know that may be experts in that field. In the past, before uh, there, in the beginning of 2019 and, and January of 2019, um, Medicare, uh, create, we have to follow the law, we have to follow um, um, uh, regulations, we have to follow direction from CMS on how to administer the program. And, that, and we had some changes in that direction in January of 2019. Uh, we have this thing called the PIM, or the Program Integrity Manual. And it was updated in January to explain how we write policy. And we have to write policy now based on evidentiary review, which, if you think about it, should have always been the case. Yeah. But it really wasn't. Uh, the medical directors could make policies for whatever reasons they wanted. And that was that. And now all of a sudden they have to make it based on an evidentiary review of the published evidence, which is something that Moldex was already doing. But now imagine you're a, you're a medical director for um, you know, one of these other Macs and you're asked to write a policy on next generation sequencing technology based on a review of the evidence. And you're a nephrologist or a, a pediatrician. How are you going to approach that? So you have to really rely on other experts, and and often what happens is they rely on um, the opinions of, let's say, like guidelines to establish what the criteria or what is what the criteria for reasonable and necessary. So if if a, if, if if the NCCN decides that this is a service that should be performed, then great, then that's what your policies can reflect that. And anything shy of that will be very difficult. Um, and so. Um, so that, that talent gap is, is palpable, um, but that's only one of many, many issues for payers. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. 
Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.